Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl from my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let them give us their daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, Will not their livestock and property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. 
They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and the wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Well, as Anna read this passage, I imagine that there were at least three proverbial elephants that walked into the room. And so what I want to do is, is identify each one of these elephants and then just say something about each one so that we can get beyond them and see as clearly as possible the text that's before us. The first elephant is one of pain. And it comes to us almost immediately there in verse number two, where we read that when Shechem, the prince of the land, saw Dinah, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, for some, that uh, uh, fact is uh, simply a sordid point in the story. But for some of you, it is a sad fact of your own story. And so anytime that something like this comes up and you hear it, uh, your mind goes back and rolls over and over and over again that which occurred to you, and it doesn't go away until it dissipates and, and departs on its own. And so I want to say right here at the outset, uh, my heart is with you, and it's been with you as I have been working on this sermon. And uh, it's been prepared with you in mind. But gratefully, out of the hopelessness that is Genesis 34, hope will arise that can temper your past and brighten your future. So before we go any further, um, I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the one who is ambushed by verse 2 and whose mind is now compulsively and repeatedly rehearsing the pain of the past, I pray that your spirit, who is a helper and a comforter, would palpably be those things right now so that they would know your peace, guarding their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the second elephant uh, in the room is one of astonishment. It doesn't come up out of any one verse, but really the, the chapter in total, and is summed up with a single question, and that is this. What is Genesis 34 doing in the Bible? I mean, this is not a story for the children's hour. This is not one that I imagine a grandma reading during 
her devotions out of that Bible on the kitchen table next to the bone china cup out of which the, the steaming tea, uh, the, the steam from the hot tea rises, all of which is bathed in the morning sun coming through the lace curtains. No, that, that's not what I see here. I, I, I see uh, pain from the beginning uh, that becomes worse as the chapter goes on. In fact, some of the worst parts of this chapter are those that are strangely and noticeably silent. Like Dinah, the victim in this story. The Hivite women whose husbands and fathers and sons are ruthlessly butchered before them. And then God, in whose book, We read all of this. So, again, what is this doing here? Well, concerning another sad chapter in the history of God's people, Paul wrote these words. He said, These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. So, if nothing else, the Lord intends for the ugliness of this story to put down our desire for evil. And in Genesis 34, it's the desire to be deceitful. The third elephant is one of uncertainty. I mean, even if there's any value in this story, how do you find it? How do you get to the bottom of it? Well, it it begins... Uh, like any other sermon that's preached from this pulpit, in the study, by quietly and carefully discerning the facts that are on the page before us. So uh, looking for a main point, uh, examining the context within which the text falls, um, uh, examining the way the persons in the passage act and react to each other. And then... Uh, Surprisingly, uh, for many, I would imagine, it continues in community. Uh, I used to work for a fellow who was fond of saying, theology is done best in community. And so I'm indebted to those with whom I've interacted over this passage, beginning with the group that met three months ago tomorrow night uh, to talk about this entire section of Scripture over which we've been preaching in these weeks. In fact, we do that before every new uh, series Uh, So I'm grateful for the men and women who were there that night with whom we read through the whole thing and then made observations on the passage. Uh, I'm also in the debt of Melissa Tan, who made and then shared 10 paragraphs of keen expositional insights. I'm also indebted to the woman who read the scripture this morning, Anna Volema, who had written for class a paper that she shared with me Uh, uh, containing 10 pages of razor-sharp exegetical insights. And then, of course, my wife, whose fingerprints are on just about all of my sermons. So I'm grateful for the community uh, with which I've been able to interact, not only in person, but also the community that's created by way of the printed word and allowed me to interact with a 19th century German and a 20th century Canadian, and a 20th century Englishman, and a 20th century American, a 21st century feminist, to name just a few. 
So how does one get to the bottom of a passage like this? In some, by patiently digging, alone and with others. This is how the message of any Bible passage is exposed. And why our approach to preaching here at Grace is referred to as exposition rather than imposition. So after all the digging, what, what was uncovered? Well, two main things. One that's inside the passage, and I'm going to address that right now, and then one beyond the passage, and when I get to that, you'll know the sermon is just about done. But for now, the overriding theme of, of Genesis 34, the melodic line, if you will, that runs from beginning to end, is, as I mentioned, that of deceit. And the main point is this. Deceit is deceitful. Deceit is deceitful. We see this time and again from the beginning of 34 all the way down to the end. Jacob is deceived. Dinah is deceived. Shechem is deceived. Hamor is deceived. The Hivites are deceived. In fact, not only do we see that deceit is deceptive throughout chapter 34, but we see it throughout the entirety of the Bible. Because sin, that which we read from Genesis to Revelation, is by its very nature deceptive. It never delivers on anything that it promises. The deceptiveness of sin reminds me of a, of a dream that I had years ago. Now, I'll let you psychologists figure out what I was really doing in my head uh, after the sermon uh, and once you hear my dream. But um, this sounds like one of these apocryphal pastoral dreams, you know, that's cooked up in the study to serve some kind of point. But I really dreamed this. I was at a football game, I was sitting in the stands, and I had a cup of ice. I kept knocking back this, this cup of ice. The strange thing about it was that the more ice I, I ate, the thirstier I became. Until I realized after, after looking down at, at this cup of ice, crushed ice, I realized I wasn't eating ice at all. I was eating rock salt which looks an awful lot like ice and is used, you know, to melt uh, snowy and icy sidewalks in, in, in the wintertime. Not here, but elsewhere. So this very thing that I was hoping would satiate my thirst is actually heightening it. And that's sin. It looks like one thing, but it always proves to be another. And so that's why Adam and Eve uh, ate the forbidden fruit. They thought it would make them wise. They were deceived. That's why Sarah laughed at God's promise of a son. She thought she was too old. She was deceived. That's why Israel refused to enter the promised land. They, they thought it was too dangerous. They were deceived. That's why David murdered so he could commit adultery. He didn't think anybody would notice. He was deceived. Moses so clearly understood the deceptiveness of sin that in his farewell sermon, he acknowledged its active presence in the heart of his congregation, even as he was preaching. It would be like me saying to you, Bible open, all of us gathered here in this place, uh, I know what you're really thinking right now, and it's not good. And I know what you're thinking is not good, because I have those thoughts too. 
So he, he even warns them at the end of the sermon, this is my paraphrase, Deuteronomy 29, 19, he says, uh, don't ever reason to yourself, even if I live in sin, everything will be okay. So let Genesis 34 teach us loud and clear that deceit is deceptive and that the wages of deceit are death. So, as we move into our passage, should it be any surprise to us that the one who lays the groundwork for this chapter of deceit is the old deceiver himself, Jacob? Now, to be sure, uh, uh, Jacob's deceitfulness in large part was, was purged from his person. Um, uh, in chapter 32, Rob Lister uh, talked to us about that. In chapter 33, Kenny talked to us about that. But old sins die hard. And that's why as the curtain lowered last week on chapter 33, we saw Jacob deceiving his brother Esau about his intent to return to Canaan. And then we saw Jacob deceiving himself by settling 20 miles short of God's intended destination for him. And then consecrating his new home with an altar, a place of worship that was named after the Lord himself. As, as, as one scholar put it, the old Jacob was in full force. His halfway obedience was really disobedience. Jacob's disobedience set the stage for a maelstrom of deceit that affected his family, affected the community in which he lived, and unfolds before us in the following fashion. The deceiving of Dinah in verses 1 through 4. The deceiving of his hosts, Shechem and Hamor, in verses 5 through 17. And then the deceiving of the hometown Hivites in verses 8 through 31. So we'll begin with the deceiving of Dinah. Now, as, as you look at uh, verse number one, the motive behind Dinah's excursion to see the women of the land is unclear. Uh, on, on the one hand, she may have gone out to simply see or to meet uh, the ladies who lived in the land. She was certainly uh, an adult by uh, uh, the standards of the culture in that day. She was of marriageable age. But on the other hand, Donna may have gone out to be seen by the ladies in that land. The Hebrew term went out can bear a sense of impropriety. And in that day, women of marriageable age did not normally go out without a chaperone. But hear me on this. No matter what Dinah's motive was, what happened to her next is absolutely and utterly inexcusable. Shechem lived large. He was a, a reigning prince. He was uh, politically powerful. He was physically strong. He was sexually unrestrained. He was the kind of person that Abraham thought he'd come on in Egypt back in chapter 12, and then with uh, 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 Abimelech in chapter 20, and Isaac thought he was meeting with in chapter 26. 
one who was commanding and capricious and dangerous. Which got me thinking, what kind of a culture nurtures the growth and development of a person like that? And the answer quickly came to me, well, one like our own. One in which high-profile, Shechem-like persons use their strength to fulfill their sexual appetites and then silence their victims by leveraging their shame. Just go to the news page on the internet and you can find example after example of how that's occurring in our culture today. So then I got to thinking, well, how does a culture nurture that kind of growth? And that led to me asking the question, well, what are we listening to? And so as an old DJ, I thought to myself, well, let's go to the Billboard Hot 100, which is the music industry standard for telling us what people listen to. And so I I read the lyrics for each of the top 10 songs for the week of June 16. So you can tell I was musing on this a month ago. I read all the lyrics. And here's, here's what I learned about what America was listening to, at least during that week. Songs littered with self-centeredness and profanity, aggressiveness that led to vengefulness that led to violence, sensuality leading to sexuality, leading to carnality, dissipation involving drunkenness and drugs that lead to destruction, racial prejudice and degradation, greed, rebellion, and wickedness, by which I mean that which is diabolical, I shared that list with the staff elders, uh, I think the Monday after I I had pulled it together and I I read all that and one of them said, didn't you read anything that was wholesome or redeeming? And I had to pause and I thought about it and no, nothing. (laughs) So then I asked myself the question, well, if that's what we're listening to, what are we watching? And so for that, I went to Box Office Mojo, which uh, tracks and publishes box office revenues. It's uh, run by a website you all have referred to probably many times, IMBD, uh, the parent company of which is Amazon. So I reviewed the ratings of the top 10 movies for the weekend June 8 through 10, so that was five weekends ago. And based on the ratings, I won't tell you what the movies are, but based on the ratings, here's what Americans paid $2.5 billion to watch. Movie number 10, sexual material, drug content, and partying. Movie nine, strong violence, grisly images, and language. Movie number eight, violence, language, sexual references, drug use. Seven, sex-related material and language. Six, language, drug use, partial nudity. Movie number five, violence, language, and crude references. Movie number four, horror violence, disturbing images, language, drug use, and graphic nudity. Movie number three, strong violence and language, sexual references, and drug material. Movie number two, violence. Movie number one, language, drug use, and suggestive content. And again, that's just a window into what people were watching and, 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 and listening to over the course of a week and a single weekend. That doesn't take into account all the days since then and all the years before that. So further add to this 
the personalization and the proliferation of technology that has, get this, 11% more women accessing pornography on their mobile devices than men. There's someone in this room whom that does not surprise. He, he's, he understands that because he deals with the ravages of that. You take all of this into consideration and you have a culture at heart that looks very much like the one that produced Shechem. So don't be deceived to think that Shechem was some dim-witted, toothless, ancient. Because Shechem is us. He possessed all the things to which our culture aspires. Political power, physical strength, sexual virility, social status. In fact, verse number 19 informs us that he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So is it any surprise that Shechem overtook Dinah with his strength, verse number two, with his words in verse number three, and then tries to permanently overtake her by marriage in verse number four. Oh, Dinah, if only your father had not deceived himself into thinking that halfway obedience was whole obedience, you would, ne- you would never have been here to suffer this humiliation. Before we get into the next part of the story, I want, to, uh, I want to address two things about ancient Near Eastern culture and its similarity to modern Near Eastern culture. In fact, they're so inextricably linked that it's really difficult to talk about one without the other. So I'm just going to do a quick sidebar here on this. The, these uh, two things are the cultural pillars of family on the one hand and then shame and honor on the other. The family pillar is such that if something happens to one member of the family, it's as if it happens to the whole family. Um, Jacob Daniel uh, and I were recently talking about a completely different matter, but he was sharing with me about his marriage to Prita in their native India. And he, he said, you know, when we got married, it wasn't just Uh, two persons coming together, but two families being united. So then, Genesis 34, and now Eastern culture places a a comprehensive premium on family. The honor and shame pillar is such that if if one member of a family is honored, everybody is honored. But if a member of the family is dishonored, All the family is dishonored. So that's why, take a look at verse 7, it it does not say right out of the gate that Jacob's sons were angry at Shechem because he had done an outrageous thing to Dinah, even though that's expressed multiple times throughout the balance of the chapter. No, rather, at first they were angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel. Thus the use of the family name, the whole family. To have violated and humiliated Dinah was to have violated and humiliated them all. So this culture, uh, cultural pillar of honor and shame remains extant today. And it's a challenge for Westerners to uh, do business or even gospel work 
in that culture. In fact, uh, three days ago, Gospel Coalition published a piece online uh, for missionaries working in honor-shame contexts. And it, it begins with these words. It says, the majority world, that's how it begins. That's not us, by the way. That's most of the rest of the world. The majority world, and especially the East, doesn't think the way we do. In a sense, they work on a completely different operating system. So as Genesis 34 continues to develop before us, don't think that you're looking at a bunch of unenlightened, backwards, hot-headed ancients. Rather, you're witnessing the workings of a structure that even today drives more of the world's population than our own. That's the end of the sidebar. So as we launch into this next section now, which is the, the, the deceiving of Hamor and Shechem, the first thing to which we come is the response of Jacob to Dinah's defilement. And we're told there in verse 5 that because his sons were out, when the word about Dinah came in, he held his peace. In other words, dad did nothing. We get to verse 8. Jacob had abdicated any responsibility to advocate on behalf of his daughter. In fact, he left it instead to his sons, and he disappears from the scene altogether. And then in verse 30, he reappears, but only to express concern over himself, employing seven first-person pronouns in that one verse, as well as concern over his great shame and concern over his compromised safety. You know, the truth is, Jacob appears to have had, any, uh, had little regard for Dinah at all. And the first five words of chapter 34 tell us why. Dinah was the daughter of Leah. When Jacob was deceived to believe that Rachel's son, Rachel, whom he loved, Rachel's son, Joseph, had been killed. What did he do? Tore his garments, put on sackcloth, refused to be comforted, and mourned for many days. That's coming in chapter 37. And when Rachel's son, Benjamin, was required as collateral for food uh, in famine time, what did he do? He expressed profound sorrow, chapter 42, and not surprisingly, disparaged the honesty of his sons in Egypt as an offense against him, the great deceiver. But when Leah, Leah whom he loved less, when Leah's daughter Dinah was humiliated, he abandoned responsibility for retreat and principle for appeasement. But if Jacob could swallow his scruples amidst the misery of his daughter, her brothers couldn't. And so in verse 7, we're told that Dinah's brothers responded to this outrageous thing with burning indignation and great anger. And that's a good sign. That's a good thing. They, they were angry because their principles had been violated. Take a look there at verse 7. For such a thing must not be done. They were angry because their hearts were broken by the feelings that were identical to those of God when he confronted the chaos of Noah's day, chapter 6, verse 6. They were angry because a sin against Dinah was a sin against the family in general, 
their father in particular, but their dad, the family leader, was AWOL. And so without Jacob to, to step up, pull everybody together, restore calm, employ reason, the sons of Israel gave way, as Calvin said, to the intemperate anger that deprives men of their senses. But before that comes to a boiling point, we also see the response of Shechem and Hamor, Shechem's dad, to Dinah's defilement. To begin, uh, Hamor makes this entirely commercial appeal to assuage the anger of Dinah's brothers. In fact, it's all summed up there at the end of verse number 10, where Hamor said, hey, you can dwell in our land, you can trade in our land, you can acquire, a, acquire property in our land. In other words, you're going to find freedom here, you're going to find business here, you're going to find security here. And then at the beginning of verse 11, Shechem makes this passionate appeal for Dinah's hand in marriage. In fact, in doing so, he turns out to be the anti-Jacob. Uh, he wants right now what you recall Jacob uh, 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 labored to acquire over the course of seven long years. Um, in fact, it, his whole plea is punctuated with all these first-person pronouns as well. He sounds like a a singer warming up to sing an aria. I mean, it's just me, 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 all, all through this thing. And finally, and, and, and sadly, it's worth noticing that in neither Hamor's appeal nor Shechem's demand is there any expression of sorrow over Dinah's stolen virginity, none whatsoever. And so we read in verse number 13 with this icy cold calculation the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Now, if they felt justified in deceiving these two fellows, it, it could be for the following reason. Keep, keep reading with me here. They said to them, uh, we, we can't do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. So there's the, the family component. We can't give uh, uh, this one inside our family to one who is outside the family. For that would be a disgrace. There's the honor-shame component going on. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Now down to verse 17. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll, we will take our daughter and we will be gone. How do Shechem and Hamor respond to this proposition? exactly as the brothers hoped they would. In verse number 18, it said they, they accepted with pleasure, and then in verse number 19, without delay. So we've seen the deceiving of Dinah, and now the deceiving of Shechem and Hamor. And finally, we come to the deceiving of the Hittite people, which uh, really points out the, the serpentine uh, machinations of this theme. I mean, they rise up, uh, uh, to change my metaphors, they come full flower like a, like a poisonous autumn crocus. It is fantastic to watch. So uh, verses 20 through 23, you have Hamor and Shechem are actually inadvertently deceiving the Hittites. And they're doing this by 
by rehearsing this appeal that was made to them, or rather the appeal that they made to the sons of Jacob, and then explaining the curious condition of Israel's acceptance, leading us to wonder, why did they ever agree to this? And the answer may be found in an interesting fact at the end of uh, Hamor's words there. Notice in 8 through 10, Hamor's offer to Israel sounds very much like a partnership, that they're going to enter into a partnership. And then in verse 16, the offer made by the sons of Jacob was to become one people. But in verse 22, Hamor says to his own people, this is what he says, on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people when every male is circumcised as they are circumcised. And, and, and then the next thing he says, well, he shows all of his cards. He says, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? I can only imagine the winks and the smirks and the backslapping that went around the group gathered there at the gate. So while Dinah's brothers were trying to deceive Shechem and Hamor, Shechem and Hamor were trying to deceive Dinah's brothers. And further, Shechem and Hamor, while they're inadvertently deceiving their people by falling for Israel's plan, they're actively deceiving the Hivites by withholding the real reason for this proposed alliance. How ironic that the aspect of Shechem's person that was used to cause all this trouble was the very aspect by which it all came to an ugly and violent end. Let the hearer understand. The Hivites desired to get all of Israel, verse 23, but ended up with Israel getting all of them, verse 28. That said, Shechem and Hamor's evil in no way justified the uh, genocidal, the rapacious uh, 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 response, deception of Dinah's brothers, especially her full brothers, uh, brothers by her mother Leah, Simeon and, and Levi, who led the charge and who, according to chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, paid for it in perpetuity. The grammar of this account casts a, a pall of indignation over the whole thing, everything that occurred. In fact, one scholar said that, that these brothers exercised no equity, only exponential revenge. Their use of God's old covenant sign as a means of payback was utterly deplorable. It would be like us taking a communion cup and filling it with cyanide and handing it to someone by whom we had been shamed. And the chapter ends. It's a bloody and broken mess. We're left with Jacob self-consumed and fuming over his son's foolishness. The sons incensed and disgusted by their father's passivity. Dinah, no doubt reunited with her mother and weeping in her arms. Oh, Dinah, if only your father had not deceived himself into thinking that halfway obedience was whole obedience, you would never have been here to suffer this humiliation, nor would any of this have ever happened. 
So what do we make of Genesis 34? Well, at the outset, I said that after all the digging, uh, I had uncovered a couple of main points. Uh, One inside the passage, and we've looked at that. Uh, Deceit is deceitful. These examples should dissuade us from believing otherwise. But the other one comes from outside the passage, and it is this. Hope can come from hopelessness. Hope can come from hopelessness. You see, the great temptation in a seemingly hopeless situation is to think, it'll always be like this. It'll never end. Haters are always going to hate. But as we get beyond Genesis 34, we learn that, well, all the mess of it was going on, God, who was silent at the time, was raising up a messenger of hope. One who was not a product of his environment, though he was one of Jacob's own sons. No, Joseph watched and learned from his brother's folly. He followed God's guidance. He remained true to his convictions as well as the Lord as he grew up and into manhood. So that on the day when his brothers cast a murderous gaze onto him, only to abandon it for profit and sell him into slavery and, oh surprise, deceive their father into thinking that he was dead. Joseph refused to play the victim. He refused to languish in shame and and engage in murderous revenge upon his reunion with his brothers. But instead, he invited them into his presence. Of course, they didn't know that it was Joseph at the time, but he invited them in. He sanctified their deceitful hearts by repeatedly testing their honesty. And Kenny's going to talk about that when we get to Genesis 45. You, you may recall, he, he really plies them on this. And they're saying, but we're honest men. We're honest men. And he knows they're not. So he sanctifies them of their deceitful hearts. He absolves their shame. He restores their honor. And he reunites the family. He, re, he reunites them with kisses. His brothers Father Jacob, his little brother Benjamin, his big sister Dinah, he saves them from themselves and certain death. Isn't that what Christ did for us? By way of the cross on which we put him and which we remember this morning. Jesus invited all of us here, who opposed him into his presence. He absolved us of our shame. He restored us to honor. And he reunited us as sons and daughters. Not not just in time, but for all eternity, having saved us from the deceitfulness of sin and its wages, which are death. If you believe that, you stake your life on that, then this table is for you. If you don't believe that, but you want to believe it, 
then confess your sin to Jesus according to His work on the cross. And He will hear your prayer. And He will forgive you. And this table is for you. If you have a relationship with Christ, but you're deceiving yourself to think that sin isn't separating you from Him, then you need to deal with that. You need to deal uh, uh, with that deception in relationship to the Lord and whomever it is that you're deceiving. Then that table will be for you, but not until then. And if you don't believe that Jesus did this for you, and this table is not for you, but I hope someday it is. And I encourage you to ask the Lord for the faith to see what at present you cannot. So as the servers come forward, uh, just a few brief words of instruction. If you uh, want or require a a gluten-free option, you can find it at the station over there. Uh, Otherwise, you're welcome to come forward when you're ready. Uh, Take a piece of bread, put it in the cup, and then you can return to your seat where uh, you can prayerfully receive the elements at that time. And if you've been stirred this morning in in some way, either by what's been said or something that's come to your mind and you'd like prayer for that, there will be people down front after the service to pray with you and for you. So may the Lord bless us as we remember his death, which is the forgiveness of our sins this morning. Amen.